Thursday on Peace Talks Radio, doing business with compassion and peace in mind. I was inspired by companies like Newman's Own and Ben & Jerry's and companies that were giving back in some respect. We'll find out what a B Corporation is from Jeff Marcoux, CEO of Dharma Merchant Services. At some point, you know, my belief is that most all businesses will jump on board and be a part of this. Also, how independent farmers caught in turmoil in Colombia are being supported by a corporation that produces beauty products. You know, one of the things that that Lush is doing that is really different than many other companies is creating long-term relationships with communities like the San Jose de Portillo Peace Community by purchasing their cacao beans. And how a local food co-op contributes to community cohesion and peacemaking at home. That egalitarian model that it is, is so important in sort of true democracy. And what the heck is a yoga joe? You'll find out today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Most people don't associate the world of business with peacemaking, unless you're talking about the many nonprofit organizations around the world, like the one that produces Peace Talks Radio, or your local public radio station, or so many others doing good work. I'd say it's fair to say that most people associate business with making as much money as one can in commerce and that a successful business or corporation is one that turns a big profit and returns dividends to shareholders. And of course, some businesses earn criticism for putting profits before their employees, or before the environment, or before the people living near their facilities. Today on Peace Talks Radio, Suzanne Kreider's conversations with some people in business who are doing it differently than that. Business, social justice, fair labor practices, peacemaking, community building can go hand in hand. We'll hear about a corporation that's helping independent farmers caught in turmoil in Colombia by buying cacao from them with help from peace advocates. Also, the story of a successful food co-op in New Mexico that advocates for fair trade and community connection. And first, Suzanne Kreider talks with Jeff Marcoux, CEO of Dharma Merchant Services, who tells us how his company, among a growing number of what are known as B Corporations, works to promote peace and justice. Dharma Merchant Services, we we kind of run under the radar of a lot of uh, people, but we, in essence, we enable companies to accept credit cards. So, you know, one of the most common ones would be PayPal for those who are uh, web-based merchants, but we also deploy equipment and process for retail bricks and mortar stores. So, uh, yeah, we're a payment processor. Jeff, what is a B Corporation, and why did you want to get into one? The the history of our industry, the merchant services or merchant processing industry, kind of has a tarnished reputation for um, deceptive business practices and the like. And uh, I was inspired by companies like uh, Newman's Own and Ben & Jerry's and companies that were giving back in some respect. So... Uh, that was the genesis behind it. And so when we came across B corporations, I mean, we were thrilled because we didn't realize that there was a, a movement to enact social change and, uh, and that business does have a responsibility to the greater benefit, which is the B and B Corp uh, benefit uh, of the community. So 
Uh, B Corps has been a great movement. It, it's uh, it's uh, international now, and you know, for real change to happen, I don't think that individuals will ever get to enough critical mass to make that happen. And we certainly can't rely on governments, right, to do the right thing and and represent uh, social change. So, but business is ubiquitous, and so you know, because business is, it touches most everybody. Uh, if business gets on board to enact, you know, these kind of changes, then it will happen. So that's a B Corp uh, in a nutshell. And and just uh, there is another movement called benefit corporations. And I mentioned that, Suzanne, because uh, it, it sounds so similar. But many states have enacted legislation which actually recognizes a different business legal type. You know, so you've got S Corps and you have... A C corporations, but a benefit corporation uh, allows a company to not just exist for shareholder value, not just to create shareholder value, but to create uh, stakeholder value to benefit good in, in the public uh, scheme somewhere. So we uh, also uh, are a benefit corporation in addition to being a B Corp. How is being a B Corp an example of corporate peacemaking? You know, aside from the fact that, you know, my company donates uh, on upwards of 50% of our uh, after-tax profits to uh, the community. Uh, At the end of every year, we identify uh, nonprofit organizations in in a few different categories. So, uh, many of the the recipients of our donations are in, in some way... Uh, fostering, you know, social uh, equality or peace or health, uh, animal welfare, etc. And so, I mean, that is the direct way that we foster peace. But when you're a company that's called Dharma, and, you know, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that doesn't have any one word uh, interpretation or, or definition, but, you know, it refers to one's path. And, and uh, you know, our path is to serve others. Without question, I mean, even to the point where if a company contacts us and perhaps we're not the best fit for them, we would just guide them into that direction. I mean, whatever's in the best interest of our stakeholders is what we do. And because of that, you know, when we have someone else's best interest in mind, we're actually practicing the Dharma as uh, laid down by, you know, the the, the teachings, um, Buddhist uh, scripts uh, uh, and such. So... Uh, everything we do, uh, even in the way that we hold space for others, Suzanne, uh, every call that comes in, you know, the, the way that we interact with clients and suppliers and vendors and people just inquiring, you know, we feel that's a reflection of our Buddha nature, you know, creating peace and doing it with compassion. In fact, that's, that's our motto, you know, commerce with compassion. If you're giving away money to nonprofits or charities, doesn't that make your services higher priced than other merchant services? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, you know, others may assume that that's the case, and and, and occasionally we have to address that when someone uh, contacts us. But no, we actually, you know, as a company, you know, we have we have to look at, you know, well, how much is enough, and. Uh, there are a lot of publicly traded companies in our space and even privately owned companies that are creating incredible wealth. Uh, that's not the case in our company. In fact, we just made a strategic decision that we would raise the uh, lowest paid 
worker salary here in San Francisco to $70,000 a year. So the ratio of our you know, lowest paid salary to mine, I'm the CEO, is less than four to one. And in our country, the average CEO to worker ratio is like 350 times. So our intention is that you know, we, we're not only fair with our pricing, we're not only fair to our staff and I'm you know, fair to myself as the CEO, but I'm willing to do that uh, with, without sacrificing you know, any kind of increase in cost or quality of service. Uh, that's just not the nature of who I am and, and what the company represents. So uh, we're one of the only companies that I know of that has full disclosure of pricing and policies on our website. Uh, it's unheard of in our industry. I know that we're making a lot less money than our competitors are, and we're absolutely okay with that. Jeff Marcoux of DMS, tell us about the clearing sessions that you do with employees. Wow, you've done some great homework, Suzanne. I appreciate your saying that. Uh, well, you know, basically for our company, we've identified four ideologies that have informed, you know, how we are doing things. And one is that, um, and I'll directly get to your question here in a second, but you know, I grew up in the uh, in the in the '60s, and so I was influenced by like Rachel Carson's uh, *Silent Spring*, and so I've always had environmentalism and sustainability in in my heart. And so, sustainability is one of those ideologies that uh, have informed us. Of course, the Dharma. I'm a practitioner, uh, a Buddhist practitioner, and so my life is informed by the Dharma, as as is uh, my work life. And you know, we've always believed that that uh, work should be a part of your path to awakening. And so we've created a number of uh, a number of things here in, in our company that have helped um, foster that. And clearing is a is a practice that we've learned from an organization called Sacred Commerce. What we learned from Sacred Commerce, which is started by a, a local chain of uh, cafes here called Cafe Gratitude, Clearing is a process by which we, as a team here in the company, uh, we do this every day, uh, not every day, every week now. We used to do it every day, but uh, it's just a methodology to find out, you know, what's keeping us from being present and uh, through a person-to-person questioning. One question might be, what version of something's missing or something's wrong are you focused on? Because oftentimes we come into work and we're, we haven't left behind the fact that we maybe there was an argument or there's something going on in your life that's keeping you from being present. So the idea is to identify, you know, intellectually, mentally, what's keeping you from being present. And then we find out, well, we ask a question that's designed to see, well, where are we connected to spirit? You know, so the question might be, you know, where do you find beauty in the world? Or, you know, who inspires you? Or just something that kind of connects you to the divine presence. So that when we start the workday after our clearing, uh, we're, we're more collect- connected to our, you know, spiritual higher self than we are with something that's going on in our head that's keeping us from being present. So that clearing process has been incredibly powerful uh, over the years. And, you know, beyond just finding out what's keeping us from being present, but, you know, we find out uh, in deep-seated way, you know, what emotions might be lingering from past events. It's It's been therapeutic. It's been transformative. And uh, our staff, you know, engages uh, w- with with that uh 
connection, and it's just been extraordinary, Suzanne. How does the clearing process relate to peace building or resolving conflict? For us, you know, when you're connected to that very, you know, higher space inside of you, um, and again, it, it could be reflected in a conversation uh, inherent in our business. Uh, uh, there are so many pieces of the puzzle for a merchant to accept credit cards, and oftentimes, a merchant may contact us, and you know, maybe terminals have gone out, and they're frustrated. They uh, they can't process credit card payments, and so. In that moment when we're when there's that conflict and and we're faced with you know the anger and the emotions that kind of spill out on a phone call, um, this clearing process has given us incredible perspective, you know, and compassion and uh, ability to admit to making mistakes and and again because we have our stakeholders' best interest in mind, then you know it comes through as you know. With compassion, you know, in, in a peaceful manner, uh, getting resolution and doing it in the right way. And oftentimes, if that means reaching into our pockets and expending uh, some some money, even if it wasn't our fault, then, you know, we feel that's the right thing to do. Uh, I mean, after all, the, the Dharma is about right actions, right thoughts, right speech, and... Um, so doing the right thing is paramount, and that that always is uh, fosters uh, uh, peaceful connections w- with all of our stakeholders. Jeff Marku, what do you recommend our listeners could do if they want to create more businesses that are involved in peacemaking? Well, a couple things. One is that you know, as individuals, uh, and we have so many practices, uh, so many spiritual beliefs and religious affiliations, I think that the courageous thing to do is is integrate those aspects into into a company. You know, not be afraid to um, to actually you know practice your your life's purpose and get gain some meaning by uh, you know, applying those things into a business environment. So. You know, one of the things that, uh, and and it's it's definitely an upstream swim for a lot of uh, people who work in companies whose culture doesn't foster that. So, you know, for listeners who who don't think that the, that their voice will make a difference, uh, you know, my my guess is we meet so many companies that are starting to open up to. Uh, a more conscious culture, you know, conscious ways of doing business. And often it's a result of uh, individuals or individuals uh, in the company that uh, are the genesis of that. So, you know, definitely, um, and there are a lot of resources and books, conscious capitalism, uh, sacred commerce, and a lot of authors are writing about conscious culture uh, and how it applies and, and, and how it can be integrated in into a company's culture and that's the main thing and so probably the biggest thing that that people can do especially as consumers is to just to to choose to do business with companies that they know are actually uh, have those kind of intentions in mind for example uh, I, I sit on the board of a organization called green America and you know green America will will uh, they will look to put uh, financial pressure on companies that are not doing the right thing. For example, 
companies that produce chocolate, for, for example, and a lot of these mainstream companies will source their chocolates from uh, plantations that uh, th- that hire uh, childs, you know, children for slave labor, you know. And so every time you purchase, make a purchase from a company, you're supporting a company that's either doing good in the world or that's not doing good in the world, that's fostering peace or it's, that's, that's fostering conflict. So I would say that the, the primary thing that any individual can do is actually, you know, peel back the layers from any company that you're purchasing goods and services from. And you can make the biggest difference in this world by your, the choice of who you decide to do business with. That would be my primary recommendation. And what do you think a business owner could do? If he doesn't want to become a B Corp, what could he or she do to build peace in their organization? Uh, well, you know, B Corp is the best start. And, and even if a company can't get through the assessment, uh, which is a lot of them, I mean, because literally uh, somewhere on upwards of 40,000 companies have started this B Corp assessment. But in the world... Uh, right now, there are only about 1,400 companies that have actually gotten through it. So it's not an easy task. It takes a, cr- a tremendous commitment on behalf of management and and employees to uh, accommodate this assessment. But there are so many uh, ideas that uh, the company can get from at least going through the assessment, you know, that would help foster greater peaceful relations with, with their own staff, um, uh, and, and with with the people who buy goods and services from them, I mean it's really important uh, that all businesses start to take a look. Uh, it reminds me of when when the green business sector just started coming into business. I mean, everyone had to shout from the rooftops, "We're green! We're green!" Uh, but you know, at some point, Suzanne, maybe it won't be in in uh, my lifetime, but. At some point, all businesses will be green because that is the right thing to do. And is and consumers uh, have the most influence on how businesses, how they act. And so uh, at some point, you know, my belief is that most all businesses will jump on board and be a part of this. And by the way, it, it doesn't take all businesses. It doesn't even take 50% of businesses. I was just looking at some research online that said that for change to take effect, it really only takes about a 10% threshold for for massive change to take place, you know, for, for, for people to adopt a whole new worldview. It really only takes about 10% uh, of people to, to do that, and that is the point at which change can happen. So, um, you know, if people are thinking, oh, it'll never happen uh, because we, we would never be majority, that's, that's not the case. Uh, change can take place with a much smaller percentage. Here our complete interview with Jeff Marcoux, CEO of Dharma Merchant Services, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Next, Suzanne visits with Maura Bliss, who works with Peace Brigades International, a nonprofit organization which witnesses for peace in many corners of the globe, including in Colombia. More about what's going on there when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, and we're looking at some business arrangements that promote social justice and thereby peace. Maura Burse is our next guest. She's with Peace Brigades International, a nonprofit organization which witnesses for peace in many corners of the globe, including in Colombia. There, PBI helps a group of farmers merely maintain their business of raising cacao beans amid the ongoing battles between rebels and the government, linking the farmers with the Lush Corporation, which makes soap bars from the cacao. Here's Suzanne Kreider. Maura, tell us about the peace community in Colombia. Colombia is a situation, Colombia is a country that has for the past uh, nearly 60 years, going on 60 years, has been mired in an internal armed conflict. So that's meant that within the country, there there has been guerrilla warfare insurgency fighters, as well as uh, paramilitary-style groups, often allied with with armed forces, particularly in the past. And um, a situation in which those who do... Uh, work to support human rights, um, to advocate for peace, uh, support victims, have often been stigmatized, uh, been defamed, been threatened, and at times even killed. It's also a situation in which massive numbers of people have been displaced, forcibly displaced from their homes. Colombia actually has, um, after Syria, the second highest number of internally displaced people in the world, a little-known fact that has meant that a lot of small-scale farmers from rural areas who you know, made their living through subsistence farming have been pushed off their land over the, the last several decades due to the, uh, the armed conflict in Colombia. One of the regions hardest hit by the conflict has been the, what's known as the Urabá region, which is in the northwest of the country near the, the border with Panama. In that area lived a number of of small communities and and rural farmers who, after having been displaced more than once, several times, said, you know what, we've had enough. (laughs) We want to stay on our land. We want to continue to protect our livelihoods. And we don't want to be uh, pawns in this conflict. Um, The conflict in rural areas has often been a situation in which those who... Um, civilians are caught in the middle. One day, you know, guerrilla fighters might come to to your farm um, and hold a gun to your head and say, feed us and shelter us for a couple days. And so many farmers have felt that they had no choice but to do that. And then a few days later, you know, the military might come along or, or paramilitaries and say, you collaborated with the guerrillas, you're a guerrilla sympathizer, we're going to threaten or kill you. And this community in this area said, we've had enough of that. Um, and so in 1997, they declared their neutrality. They said, we, are, we know that international law recognizes the, uh, the neutrality of civilians, um, what's known as the principle of distinction. And we want to call upon that to protect ourselves. And so they built fences around their uh, community areas and um, declared themselves the peace community and since then have been uh, to fighting to, to, to remain on their land, to resist displacement, and also to build a model of citizens farming that can, that can support them and, and be just and sustainable. Moira, there are three principal players. There's the peace community in Colombia, there's Lush Corporation, and there's also Peace Brigades International, where you work. Tell us about your position at Peace Brigades. 
Sure. Well, I am the Columbia Project Advocacy Officer, excuse me, based in Washington, D.C. And so my job is to share with policymakers in Washington as well as uh, the NGO community and public supporters about what's happening on the ground in Colombia for human rights defenders uh, like the Peace Community of San Jose Aparto members as well as the overall human rights situation in Colombia and make uh, suggestions and, and policy proposals and the like to help shape U.S. policy to better support protection for human rights defenders and the human rights situation in general. Tell us about the Lush Corporation, what they do and how they got involved in Colombia. Sure. Well, um, the Lush Corporation got involved in Colombia uh, through our one of PBI's offices uh, based in London, uh, support office that um, developed a relationship with Lush, which is a uh, a company that seeks to support fair trade projects and environmental protection and other uh, social justice initiatives through their company's operations. Um, and Lush was interested in supporting the peace community, having heard ab- from PBI about uh, its work to to create um, food sovereignty, economic sovereignty, um, and autonomy, and protect its community members in the conflict in Colombia. Lush developed a relationship actually directly with the peace community to export uh, cocoa, uh, so chocolate essentially, cocoa beans that they then could pr- uh, process and use in producing a massage bar, use the coconut, the oil from the cacao to, to produce a massage bar that they sell in their stores. Mora, what is Lush doing that is extraordinary or brave for a corporation if that feels important? You know, one of the things that, that Lush is doing that is really different than many other companies is creating long-term relationships with communities like the San Jose de Partido Peace Community that provide long-term support for the community itself by a direct relationship in purchasing their cacao beans. So the peace community, this is one of their main sources of income. Um, and so besides the, you know, the food crops that they grow, that they eat themselves, they do need to make some money in order to send their kids to school and buy clothes and things like that. And so having a direct relationship with Lush in which they are every year purchasing a certain amount of, of cacao beans at a, at a fair trade price, Lush is helping support the peace community's livelihoods as well as their long-term project of, of resistance, of, of staying on their lands, of resisting displacement, and supporting local peace-building initiatives. And that's something that many corporations are only seeking short-term profits and not thinking about the long-term and about sustainability and about uh, supporting communities. We are recording this program in October 2015. There have been movements and negotiations between the government of Colombia and the insurgents. So I'm curious, if they sign a peace treaty, do you think it will impact your work or do you think it will impact the community in Colombia? That's a, a great question, Susan. There are, in fact, peace talks happening right now in Colombia. Um, actually, they're taking place in Havana, Cuba, between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas. The FARC is the uh, insurgency that has been active for the longest time in Colombia, uh, since the 60s. And the possibility of a negotiated peace accord with the FARC is a really hopeful sign for Colombia. 
Um, it's an imp- we believe it's an important step towards making Colombia a more peaceful and place and, and a place more supportive for, for human rights and human rights activists and, and communities like the peace community. At the same time, we don't think that uh, an accord with the FARC will solve all of Colombia's problems. Um, there are a number of obstacles both to the final signing of an accord with the FARC as well as to the implementation of the accord that they that they do reach, as well as other situations in the country that make difficult a an immediate turn to to full peace in Colombia. Um, that includes those those issues include the fact that there's a um, there are other active guerrilla group in Colombia, the the ELN, um, that is not currently in formal negotiations with the government, um, and and we believe that in order for a more uh, robust peace process to happen, the ELN ought to also be included. Uh, in addition, there are other illegal armed groups that are active in Colombia. Um, these are groups that have that are sort of successor groups to the, the paramilitary, uh, the right wing paramilitary groups that I mentioned earlier in the interview, um, and 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 also drug trafficking and criminal groups that are active um, that are not participating in in any kind of uh, peace talks at the moment, um, and that are definitely the source of at least some of the threats and attacks against human rights defenders and communities like the peace community. Um, in addition, you know, the, as I've mentioned, the peace community is, is based in a really rural area, a really remote area, and um, in, in their region, as well as many regions of the country that are, that are more remote and more rural, is where the majority of the, the internal armed conflict has taken place. It's not the more majority of the violence has not taken place in in the big cities, uh, particularly in recent years, but but much more in, in remote uh, rural areas. And that has part of that dynamic is also the fact that there has been very little state presence in many of these um, parts of the country. And so one big obstacle too is is um, building up a, a civilian state presence in those areas um, and and sort of filling the void that, um, that would inevitably be left if there is a demobilization disarmament of, of the guerrillas. Based on the fact that there are other insurgents besides the FARC, let's say they sign the peace treaty, does that mean you'll still be working in the peace community? Oh, definitely. I mean, it, we would, even if there was a peace accord also that also included the ELN or a separate one with the ELN, Peace Brigades International would definitely still be working in Colombia. Uh Part of that is because the um, the first few years after a peace accord, actually, as have been shown in other similar situations in other parts of the world, are actually in many cases even more violent than the than the years in the time preceding the signing of an accord. Um, as 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 all the implementation happens and as different actors sort of figure out the the shifting power balances. Um, and so we definitely see a need for us to continue being there. And in fact, Peace Brigades International has also worked in Colombia, excuse me, in Guatemala. And we were in Guatemala during um, the the negotiation of a of a, a settlement to the armed conflict in that country. And shortly thereafter, we we left Guatemala, and actually a few years later went back and are still in Guatemala. And one ex- really important lesson that we learned from that experience is that. The signing of a peace accord does not mean 
peace. It doesn't mean positive peace. It doesn't necessarily mean that violence is going to go down, that human rights defenders and community leaders will, will, will no longer be threatened. Um, and until there's a situation in which those threats and attacks and, and assassinations of, of human rights defenders no longer happen, PBI will see a need to continue working in Colombia. What can our listeners do for businesses they care about or businesses they use? How can people who listen do something to encourage corporations to be more involved in peacemaking or peacekeeping? Well, I think there are a number of ways uh, to to push corporations to do a better job around peacemaking and peace building. One is supporting uh, corporations when you do have to buy the products that are that are making strides in in supporting positive initiatives like the peace community. Um, and, and Lush, of course, is an example of that. And another one is to is to not support and therefore not buy from companies that are that are involved in or or linked to uh, problematic situations with regards to to human rights and, and peace building. Um, peace Brigades International doesn't. Uh, we don't run campaigns on these issues, but a lot of uh, a lot of other organizations do, um, like Rainforest Action Network, like Greenpeace, uh, like Amazon Watch. And so those would be good organizations to, to look into and contact for more information on, on those kinds of, of issues. Um, but I will note that with the possibility of the signing of a peace accord in Colombia, one thing that we are, uh, are expecting is that there will likely be an increase in uh, in foreign investment in Colombia and and probably specifically in uh, the extractive industry, which is you know things like oil and natural gas and uh, mining, like gold mining and coal. Colombia is very rich in natural resources of all of those and other minerals, and we are concerned about the protection of of human rights. Things like consultation with the communities on which the land to be mined is located or, uh, or respect for the rights of, uh, to protest of communities who don't want to have projects on their land or who are concerned about the implications of, of certain aspects of projects. Uh, and there have already been a number in Colombia in recent years of, of these kinds of protests, and unfortunately uh, some leaders have been, have been threatened and even killed. And so we really also want to alert leaders and, and listeners of this program and um, and others about the, the potential uh, potential danger that this could happen that it's important that that corporations uh, really commit to to respecting and upholding human rights uh, and community rights when it comes to their operations buying and not supporting corporations who do not support human rights, it's a really good idea. Is there anything else that listeners can do on the front end before they're buying? Can they do anything else with corporations to encourage peacemaking? Well, this is not, in fact, my area of expertise, so <laughs> nor uh, an area in which PBI directly works. Um, so I'll, I'll answer this question more from uh, my perspective as a, an individual not as a PBI representative, but but um, you know I know that a lot of people have are doing things like with their investments, making sure that that their you know uh, 
uh, 401ks and their retirement plans aren't being invested in in companies that are are shown to having to have violated human rights or be obstructing peace-building initiatives. Um, I also know that uh, some individuals who are shareholders in companies or or participate with organizations that uh, that use share the shareholder activism in order to push companies to to respond for uh, the problems that may exist in their operations or to change their policies. Uh, so those are some ways that that individuals can can contribute. How do you think? this work with the peace community is relevant to our listeners. Why should they care what's happening? <laughs> well, I believe that what happens to, to one of us in one part of the world affects us all. We're all, we're all human beings, and, and I believe that we should all care about what happens <laughs> to all of us. Um, but also because, you know, peace building is something that, that – and, and specifically the peace-building work of the peace community is a model for other parts of the world. For it, it's been a, it served as a model for other communities in Colombia, but also communities around the world. And this idea of standing up for what's right, of uh, defending one's life and livelihood, is something, is, and, and the courage to do that in the face of really real uh, physical danger is a source also of inspiration for those of us, you know, here in, in the U.S., we might not have the same kinds of, say, violence that we confront, and certainly not an internal armed conflict, of course, but there are also struggles and issues um, that we face in our in our own country, you know, that need to be changed, issues around one thing that has been a major focus recently has been police brutality in this country um, and uh, and racialized violence. Uh, and you know, and in situations like that, there's a lot to be learned from the courage and the and the perseverance uh, of the peace community and other Colombian human rights activists. More with Mora, Mora Burse, our full interview with the Peace Brigades International Worker at our website. Find it at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Ahead, we'll hear how a local food co-op can contribute to peace when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, and we're online with all of our programs at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and we're looking at some business arrangements that promote social justice and thereby peace on today's program. 
Another way of doing business with peace and justice in mind are co-ops. You may very well have a food co-op or a credit union or some other co-op business in your community. We do in our hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Suzanne talks with the membership coordinator of La Montanita Co-op, Robin Seidel, who tells us how co-ops work in communities to meet needs and ultimately contribute to peace. For full disclosure, I want to say I am currently a member of the La Montanita Food Co-op. However, I didn't ask them to be a guest because of that. I asked because they're a long-standing company with um, really good cooperative values. That's why they're here. Robin Seidel, what is a cooperative? Well, there are many definitions of the co-op of a cooperative depending on what kind of co-op you are. La Montanita is a consumer-owned co-op. So we are owned by a community of shoppers and consumers that uh, own the business. An international definition is that a co-op is an association of autonomous and independent individuals coming together for mutual aid and mutual benefit. What kind of mutual aid? It depends on what kind of co-op it is. If it's a consumer co-op, as in our case, we purchase in bulk and then we sell those foods and those products to the community that owns us. If it's a producer co-op, maybe a bunch of farmers are coming together to market their products together to have a better economy of scale in the marketplace. If it's a child care co-op, a group of families might come together to help each other take care of their children. So co-ops really come together to meet the needs of a community of people. Then it benefits all the owners of that co-op. You must have decided to be a co-op, not another regular corporation. What's the difference between a co-op and other companies? Oh, there, there's really a huge difference between the co-op economic model and the corporate business as usual model. We all know how the corporate business as usual model works. If you have extra money, after you put a roof over your head, food on the table, shoes on the baby, you go to the stock market and you buy shares of stock in that publicly traded corporation. And for every share of stock that you can afford to buy with that extra money, you buy another vote in that organization. So people with more money or more resources suddenly become more equal. But in a co-op, we have a different model, and that is we say one person, one vote, that's it. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much money you have, you cannot buy more votes in a co-op organization. So we really think of co-ops as true economic democracies because of that that democratic one person, one vote structure. Are cooperatives nonprofits? No, we are not 501c3s. We make profits and then we return the profits that we make to the community of owners. And that is something that a nonprofit organization cannot do. They can reinvest their money in the organization, but they cannot distribute that patronage to the community of owners to enrich that community of owners. 
If you distribute the money, is that based on, what's it based on? It's based on patronage. How much you use the goods and services of the cooperative organization that you own. And so the more you come to La Montanita and buy your food there, the bigger your patronage return is. And that's another key difference between the co-op structure and the corporate structure. And the corporate structure, your return is they want unlimited returns. You know, they don't care where they dump their toxic waste. They don't care who dies in a sweatshop fire in Bangladesh. They're out to get as much profit as they possibly can for their owners. Unlimited based on the investment, the, that extra money. But at co-ops, it's based on patronage, how much you use the goods and services of that organization, and it is limited based on your patronage. So that's another key difference between the co-op structure and the corporate structure. Robin Seidel, how is being a cooperative an example of corporate peacemaking? Well, when I think of what all that's going on in the world and, and when communities are not in peace, I think that it is directly related to uh, a lack of access to resources and the unequal distribution of wealth and the suffering that that causes in communities, that lack of access to resources. And because co-ops uh, are more egalitarian because everybody gets an opportunity to be an owner and have access to those resources. I really think if we are going to create a more peaceful world and a more just world, the co-op economic model is key in that creation. What kind of peacemaking do I do if I shop at the co-op rather than like a big chain grocery store? Well, you're supporting your friends and neighbors in the community uh, we know from many economists that there is a multiplier effect. When you take a dollar and you spend that dollar on a local product in a locally owned store, that dollar multiplies many times before it leaks out of the community. If you take that same dollar to a big box store, a big corporate chain, immediately 73 cents leaves the community and only 27 cents stays in the community. So I don't know about you, but I would rather see all of us in this room today get to use my dollar that I'm spending on tomatoes, broccoli, potatoes, green chili, whatever it is, right? That we all get to use that dollar before it leaves our community. So just creating that community wealth, that, again, sharing of resources is key in peacemaking when you shop at a co-op or when you help a community form a co-op. Robin Seidel, what are reasons that people give for not shopping at the co-op? Mostly, I think, they think that we're some weird hippie organization. <laughs> <laughs> or they, um, they think it's a really... Um, tight little club of some kind, and they're not joiners. Really, anybody can shop at La Montanita Co-op, and at most food co-ops, you get a variety of benefits if you are an owner. And I think people also don't understand that we pay the true cost of production for many of our products. And so are our prices a little higher than the big corporate chains that have hundreds or thousands of stores that they have a huge economy of scale to purchase with? Yes, they are. 
but we also are making sure that all our staff gets paid a fair and good wage, that we pay 80% of their health care and their dental care. Moms and dads get maternity leave. We give all our staff 50 cents on every dollar that they put in their 401k. We match that by 50 cents. So we're trying to create a work with dignity environment. And all of that, doing it right, doing it in a sustainable way, means we probably have a higher overhead than some of the big corporate chains vis-a-vis our size, proportionate to our size. So I think that that's why some people don't always understand the importance of the co-op model and what that means in our communities in in terms of building community wealth and how that egalitarian model that it is is so important in sort of true democracy. You can hear more from Robin Seidel of La Montanita Food Co-op in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in our complete interview with her on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Now, before we go, here's a story of a young man who had what he thought was a little funny idea that turned into a successful little business venture that brings together two concepts that don't often get associated with each other, yoga and combat soldiers. When I was a kid, we played with what have forever been called the Little Green Army Men. Then in the 1960s came larger G.I. Joe action figures. Dan Abramson has taken the Little Army Men idea and put the soldiers in yoga poses. He sells them under the name Yoga Joes. They've moved pretty well. Dan thinks they promote some good ideas, which he tells Suzanne Kreider all about. Yoga Joes are the classic green army man toy, but they're doing yoga instead of fighting. I'd say I definitely took my inspiration directly from the classic toy. Specifically, when I I had the idea, I, I went and bought myself every set possible of little army man toys. Um, and then I basically noticed that they were in very similar gestures to actual yoga poses. So I sort of embarked on a year long quest to figure out how to make this, um, categorizing the positions of each of these, of these army man, you know, limbs and heads. And, um, and that was basically my inspiration from the beginning. Danny Abramson is is this more like a gag? Like, you know, we grew up with Green Army Men, and it's like a gag, or does it have a deeper meaning? Well, I think it's definitely a gag. I, I think that was my intention from the beginning, uh, to make people laugh. I, I, I thought it was funny. And so did my friend Paul. Um, he's a San Francisco stand-up comedian. And we kind of were joking around at a coffee shop, trying to figure out ways to get people to do more yoga, make, make yoga more mainstream. And we were thinking, what would what could we do to you know make this less serious, you know? And uh, we we're thinking, should we make dogs do yoga? No, should we make action figures do yoga? And then it was just like it just hit us like a you know ton of bricks. It's just yoga jokes, army men doing yoga because they're practically already doing it, and they're all, and they actually are on these platforms that kind of look like yoga mats. So it definitely started as uh, as something funny. And I, I want that to carry through. It, it is lighthearted. It is funny. And um, I think that's what people like about it. It's funny piece. And people see them, and some people want to buy them. Well, who wants to buy them? Well, I get a, I get a nice mix of people, uh, which is, you know, makes it, makes it a good product. Um, but um, the, the interesting mix is 
I get obviously yoga enthusiasts, but then I also get a strong military presence, uh, both active duty and retired. Um, then you also see moms who want to have a nonviolent toy, um, as well as just design hipster arty people that, uh, that, that see irony in it. So it's a nice mix. It's a nice little hodgepodge. And Dan, why do military people want Yoga Joes? Well, that was what's so interesting about the project. Um, you know, I knew that military yoga was a thing, that people were treating post-traumatic stress with yoga, but I never knew it was this big. I received messages and, you know, an outcry of support from people in the active duty and uh, retired world. Also, people just trying to rectify life after service. Uh, families trying to do something together. Um, I think I think military people like it because yoga has an interesting way of helping you let go. Uh, there's something that's bugging you, whether it's like you're thinking about work or you're thinking about a note on your phone. It is a way because you're trying to keep up with this active position and stay stay along with the the rhythm of the of the class. You can't really focus on the thing that you that you dwell on. So when someone has a, you know, a stressful moment or uh, some trauma, like a lot of our soldiers do, this is a way of letting go. Danny Abramson, I'm sure you had lots of goals in creating Yoga Joes. What was the peacemaking goal behind creating Yoga Joes? I think the peacemaking goal was just to get more people to do yoga. Um, I just I started doing it a couple of years ago and found enormous benefits. Um, initially, physical benefits for my for my back, and I you know and this was when I was about 26 years old. I started to have back pain, um, but then I started to see a lot of other benefits about focus and um, in in sort of our modern world of just constant communication, constant stimuli. Uh, I was working at an ad agency at the time. Uh, it was just an email every second, uh, a tweet every second, somebody tapping me on the shoulder every second. It, I found it very difficult to focus. And taking you know an hour, an hour and a half to do a yoga practice helped me find a little bit of silence in my brain. It, it was this way of uh, finding peace internally. So I'm curious about the military people who buy Yoga Joes. Do you see a combination in them of this strength and flexibility? Well, I hope so. I hope Yoga Joes kind of celebrate <clears throat> the redeeming qualities in a soldier, the, the focus and the discipline. Um, I think that's why they've flocked to the practice so well. They, they're used to physical training. And, and that was what another thing that was so fascinating about um, the response I received from the military. Because it wasn't just veterans you know, that, that served in a, a former military operation. These were current people in the field right now. And they say that we do physical training, we incorporate yoga. Um, one, one captain from Afghanistan messaged me and said that after their patrols, they like to come back and do yoga because they like to play peace after they play war. Dan, have you ever heard any negative reaction to Yoga Joes from like, let's say, older, older veterans or other active military people? Um, no, I've, it's generally been positive. I, I'd say, I get, so from what I've seen on the internet, it's been you know 99% positive. 
of course, every once in a while, um, you know, the polarizing conservative movement on the very edge of it can say that this is the wussification of America and, you know, how children sh shouldn't be coddled and have nonviolent toys. And that's not something that I was really trying to address at all. Um, but, you know, people like to take a symbol, something that has, a, you know, an iconic look to it and then draw their own conclusions. And this is a very, very small small argument that, you know, it, it, it was very few More with Dan Abramson in our complete interview with him about his Yoga Joes on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can go to hear more from all of our guests and all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002 and find lots of other resources for your own exploration of peacemaking. It's also where you can go to sign up for a monthly newsletter, The Monthly Podcast, and make a contribution or vehicle donation to support the work of Peace Talks Radio, which is produced independently by the nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated, separate and apart from your public radio station. Learn how to help at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to financial support from individuals just like you, more support comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman wrote and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm -hmm.